We're going to be in the book of James this morning, in James chapter 1. For a long time, I have been um, intrigued by the idea of of, um, different personalities, different personality styles, different um, temperaments. And, and I remember it was, it was towards the end of my high school time, probably the very first part of college where I first began to hear terms like choleric and phlegmatic and sanguine and melancholic, the different temperament styles. And, and I loved it. I, I loved learning about those things and, and trying to figure out, um, what I was, for one, and who the people around me, what kind of a personality temperament they had. Um, I loved to learn about those things. And so, uh, many of you probably know all those things, and there's, I'm not going to dive into them for a long time because we could spend forever talking about different personality styles. But you know, there's, there's four. In fact, the easier way to understand them is to go with Gary Smalley's, um, animals that he uses. He, he talks about there's a, there's a leadership, a choleric style. That would be the lion, um, personality style that Gary Smalley talks about. There's another personality temperament, a sanguine. Um, that would be someone who's, who's, uh, very social, very outgoing. Uh, they like to be in front of people. That would be the, uh, otter, I think. Is that right? Somebody is that Gary Smalley calls that the otter. Um, and, uh, and then there's another personality style, which is, which is, uh, phlegmatic. Um, and that would be the golden retriever. Gary Smalley calls it. They, they love people. Um, they, they, they aren't necessarily up front people. They're, they're more behind the scenes, but they're very, uh, empathetic with people. They, they feel people's pain. They want everyone to be happy. Um, they would be, if, if there's a kind of a quadrant, if you can picture that in your head, the lion is the opposite of the, of the golden retriever. They're kind of corners. Um, lions run over people. They're, they're, they want to lead the, the way and golden retrievers want everybody to be happy. Then the fourth one is, is melancholic, and that's, uh, Smalley's is the beaver. Uh, the beaver is, is, is the worker. He's the one that likes to have everything organized and just works all the time and keeps, keeps things going and, um, is a perfectionist usually. Again, it's not, it's not in front of people. They want to be behind the scenes. Um, they're melancholic is the other term that would get used for that. Uh, so they would be, uh, much more introspective and, um, and so there's all those different things. And, and as I began to learn about those, I loved learning about them because it, it, it helped me to understand a little bit more of who I was. It helped me to understand people around me. And so you, you, you begin to look at people and you say, well, uh, you know, of course you like to be in front of people. You're sanguine. You're, you know, you're the, you're the beaver. You, or you're the otter. You love to, to be the life of the party. And so you start pegging people into different things. And, and, and I really, I really liked learning those things until this, this, just the last few years, probably three or four years ago, I began to think through these things and, and realize while they're still important and it's still, I still spend time, you know, you wonder what your kids are and, and how they're going to fit into things. And you think about all those things. And I think that's important. But I began to realize that sometimes we use personality temperaments or we use the personality styles that we have really to just excuse sin that's in our heart. We, we say, well, that's just who I am. That's the, you know, that's my personality. And so of course, 
Uh, I'm, I'm a lion. I'm going to run over people. I'm sorry that your feelings got hurt, but that's, that's just the way I am. Or, or maybe you're on the other end where you, you, you don't cover details well. And so, um, you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get done what I said I was going to get done, but, uh, you know, that's, that's just the way I am. That's my personality. I, you know, I'm wh- whatever. And, and, and so I still think those are important. I think it's, it's good for us to know those things, but, uh, but don't use it as an excuse for sin that gets lodged in our heart and, and our hearts need to, we need to be able to, to see our hearts and see that sometimes it's not our personality. Sometimes it's sin that we have that's built up inside of us. Anyway, that's just a free point for today. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. As I was thinking, I, was, I can't even tell you how I got to there. Another way that we talk about personality styles, though, and temperaments is, is, is the five love languages that Gary Chapman had. And that's kind of where I started with today. Um, Gary Chapman talks about that there's five ways that we, that we speak love or that we hear love. Um, there's five ways. One is that is, is people can be gift givers. They like to give gifts. Um, some people like to spend quality time with you. That's how they show love is by spending quality time. Um, there's, a, there's one called acts of service. They like to do something for you. That's how they show their love for you is that they, is that they have an act of service. Um, physical touch is another one that people show love by physical touch. And another way that people show love is, is through words of affirmation. Uh, they speak things to you. Um, and that's also how, how different people, again, uh, hear love. They speak it one way, they show it one way, and they also receive it uh, maybe in, in the same language that they share it in or maybe a different language. And so um, Jenny and I talk about this with our kids all the time. What, what kind of, what's their love language that Jonah receives love in? How does he... How does he share it, and how can we make those things work in, in our parenting um, with our kids? And again, those are important things, I think, to know uh, and, to, and to figure out for those, those people around you. Mine, this is the long story to get to this, my, one of the ways that I receive love and give love is through gift giving. Um, and so Christmas time is, is uh, usually a, a very positive thing for me. I, I love to think about gifts. Now, now, if you had to rank those five things, mine would be gift giving. I love to give gifts and I love to get gifts. Jenny would have like all of these. She'd have four of them rank and then gift giving would be like way down here. I mean, it would, she does not like to give them and she does not like to receive them. So when we, when we're, you know, at our peaks, we're, we're totally missing each other. She hates Christmas time having to give gifts to me because I, you know, oh, I know how much you love me by if you give me a good gift. And, and she, you know, thinks, oh, I'm never going to find a good gift because I don't like to give. So, so we just go round and round about that. But gift giving is one of the ways that I, that I share and that I hear love. And so several weeks ago, a month ago, I was reading through James and, and I read through this first chapter in James and, and just, the line that we're going to get to in just a little bit, that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father, that just began to ring out to me. And I just began to look at this chapter and say, what are the gifts that God talks to us about and what that James talks to us about that God gives us? What are those good gifts? I, I love to receive good gifts, so let me look at these and see what they are. So today, we're going to look at James chapter 1 here just for a few minutes. And we're going to look at some of the gifts that the perfect gift giver gives out. James 
Chapter 1, starting in verse 2, says this. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But... Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. There's no variation in him. There's no shadow in him. He is the greatest giver of gifts and gives great gifts. So this morning, what I want to do is I just want to look at this passage in James and really point out five different gifts that James has listed here um, that God gives to us. God, the perfect giver of gifts, gives these things to us. So let's see what they are and how they work and apply in our life. And so I have some gifts over here under the tree that we're going to look at today. This first gift that James talks about here in chapter 1 is, is pretty obvious. He starts it right at the beginning. Count it all joy, brothers. When you come to trials. Gift number one that James starts to talk about. In fact, as you picture James writing this letter, he just, this is what he starts out with first. I want to tell, I want to tell the believers, I want to tell the believers that they should count it as joy when they come upon trials. It's a pretty, that's a pretty tough way to start a letter. You see, the people that James is writing to the early church, the believers of the early church, they are in they are in a bad place of persecution. They are in a time when when they are being persecuted and and lots lots of persecution is coming on them, lots of trials are on them because they are believers, for no other reason than because of their place in the church. In fact, as I first began to think about this, I thought, who am I to talk to you about trials when when I, the trials that I feel like I've had in my life have been so minuscule compared to some that I know you have had or maybe even have, are having right now. 
And as I began to think about that and pray about that, I just thought, you know, all the trials that we have, they are probably pretty pale in comparison to the trials of the early church. And yet that's exactly who James is talking to when he says, count it all joy. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that these trials are the testing of your faith, which produces steadfastness. And steadfastness to have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. See, James says there's going to be these trials that happen in your life. You're going through trials right now, James says. But it's not, it's not just a hardship that you're supposed to just grin and bear. But you're to do it with joy because it's a testing. It's a, it's a trial that when we get to the end, we're going to know beyond a shadow of a doubt at the end of this trial, we're going to know that our faith is there and that we have a steadfastness about our spirit. And so there's this trial that you're in. There may be several trials that you're in. But when we come out of it, there will be proof. You will see proof and know proof. It's a test that's directed to an end. So count it joy, brothers, as you face trials of various kinds. It's easy for us to, to hear about trials and to think about them and, and, and to just think, all right, we just, have to, we, we just have to keep calm. We just have to make it through. We just have to survive and get out the other end. That's not what James is saying here. He doesn't just say, as I mentioned, he doesn't just say grin and bear it and buckle down and get through. He says, see it as joy. That when you get to the other side, when you get to the other side, the steadfastness that's created in you will be something to celebrate. And so when you, when you meet various trials, find joy in those things. Now, not... not Light, trivial, laughter, joy, giggling joy, not that kind of joy, but joy that God is giving you a trial, a test, so that you might find steadfastness in it. Steadfastness is different than, than apathy. It's different than stoicism, which is just numbness in it. You get through it, but on the other end, you're just numb. It's different than that. Steadfastness is, is a kind of triumph. When we get to the other side, there will be rejoicing in this trial because, because of the steadfastness that God has produced in us. Not, not apathy, but joy. James gives us five things. He starts by saying, watch out for these various trials. They're going to produce steadfastness in you. And then he kind of gives a parenthetical. If you're looking, if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see in, in verse 4 he says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And then he goes through a couple of paragraphs there, really, and comes back in verse 12. He says, Now blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. And then he gives a couple of parentheticals in there. He talks about steadfastness in 4. He talks about steadfastness in verse 12. And those verses in the middle is just a thing. He's, he's writing the letter. He says, consider it joy. You're going to have these trials. They're going to produce steadfastness with you. And then he says, there's, there's this other gift that you can ask for. This is what he talks about in verse 4. He says, there's this, this second gift 
that we're to ask for, and that gift is wisdom. Wisdom. So James is writing and he says there's going to be these trials. I want you to, to tackle them with joy so that you might have steadfastness produced in your life. And then, as he's thinking about that, he says, and remember, remember, ask for wisdom. One of the things that you're going to need as you come into these trials, James is, I think, thinking, is you're going to need wisdom to know exactly how God might use this trial, how God might use this trial and how God is using this trial to produce steadfastness in your life. So he says, let's have wisdom. Now, most of us, I think, probably think wisdom comes with age. Wisdom comes with maturity. Wisdom is, is, is something that as, as you get older, as you get more gray hair, as you get more years under your belt, you become wiser. And, and to some extent, that is true. There is some wisdom that comes with maturity. There is some wisdom that comes with experience and with age. That is not necessarily the wisdom I think that James is talking about here because he says, he says, ask God for it and do it in faith knowing that God provides it. He doesn't say when you get older, God will provide it. He doesn't say it will just automatically come as you grow, but instead God provides faith. That God provides wisdom through faith. And then he goes on to talk here as well and says, let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave in the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is saying, there's some of you that you, you, you're, you're coming to trials and you, you want to be on God's side, but you're not totally sold out. You don't have faith in God, but you see that, that maybe there's some hope there, and so you're, you're kind of straddling the fence. There's some of you that, that you're asking God for wisdom, but you don't really have faith that God is God. God is the one who saves, and so you're, you're asking for that, but you don't do it because of your faith. You do it because you think that's what's best for you. He's saying, those of you that are like that, you're, you're tossed all around in the sea. You're, you're double-minded. You're going both sides, and it's not going to work. You're not going to find wisdom just on your own. God gives wisdom to those who believe, and so in your faith and in your belief in the God of all creation, ask for wisdom that He might help you through the trials. So James is writing, he's saying there's going to be some trials that you're going to have. And then he thinks you're going to need to ask for wisdom for this because wisdom is really how you see and understand in the trials where you're headed and what steadfastness God is working out in you. But he thinks there's some that are going to ask for wisdom and they're they're not even believers really and so they're going to be all over and they're going to they're double-minded. They're tossed by the winds. And, and speaking of double-minded people, James says, there's another gift that God gives to us. Again, he's still in this parenthetical between verse 4 and verse 12 about steadfastness that God provides in our life. 
But he says there's this, there's this third gift that he talks about here. When he talks about poor and rich, there's this gift of contentment, I think is how we can best phrase it. When he says in verse 9, let the lowly brother, both in his exaltation, let the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, the flower falls, and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. James is writing and he says there's, there's this double-minded man who asks for, for wisdom but doesn't ask for it out of faith. And there's also these double-minded people, James says, that, that are not content, are not content with what they have. There's poor people or people who don't have means and they are not content. They, they long for more. They yearn for more. And, and James says to them, if you're poor, you should rejoice in your lowly place. You should rejoice in, you should rejoice in where God has you and with what God has you with. And if you're rich, you should rejoice in what God has for you and not to trust in what you have, but instead to trust in God. You see, I think what he's saying is that those that are poor were not trusting in God. They were not content in God. Instead, they were, instead they were looking for what they might still need or what they wish they had and could not find contentment in where they were. And the rich were hoping in what they had, what they had accomplished and what they had accumulated and what they had, had put together. And they could not find satisfaction and contentment in what they had either. And so James is saying there's this double-mindedness even about you. So let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation in what God calls humility and let the rich in his humiliation because if not, you'll be like a flower of the grass who will pass away for the sun rises in the scorching heat and withers the grass and its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. He's double-minded as well. So James says, there, there's going to be these trials that you come on. That's the gift that comes from God. The first gift that comes from God is these trials that come. And then he thinks you're going to need wisdom. If you're in the midst of those trials, you're going to need wisdom to see how those trials might produce steadfastness in your life. And... Make sure you ask in faith. Don't be double-minded about it. Make sure that you are, are all in and that God is alive and at work in you so that you might have that wisdom. And speaking of double-minded people, there's these others that, that they just are not content. Whether they have much or have little, they're not content. And so there's this gift of contentment James talks about. Um, and, then, and then James talks about this fourth gift. says in verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. And then in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself tempts no one. So, this gift that we're looking at, in verses 13 and 14, I think... 
This gift that comes from God is called the gift of illumination, if you can see that. Illumination. I think what James is saying here is that some would come and they would say, but I have this, I have this sin that's in my life, and so since all things must come from God, there's this sin in my life, this, this thing that's going on, and so it must be God that's doing that. He's, he's using this sin to tempt me. And maybe even that's the trial that God has in my life, is the sin that's tempting me. But that, that temptation that I have is just too strong, and I can't, and I can't battle it anymore, and, and I keep succumbing to it, and it's God that's doing it to me. And James says, oh, you're looking at this all wrong. He says, first, first don't ever say that God is using your sin to tempt you into sin, because God does not use sin. I think James is saying right away, we have, a, we have a misperception of how much an affront sin is to God. If we, if we can begin to even believe that God, that God would put sin in our life so that we might be tempted and tried and tested. God hates sin. All sin is an affront to God. It is, it is so far from His perfection. It is, it is the absolute opposite of His holiness that God, God does not, does not tempt us with sin. He does not use sin as one of the weapons in His arsenal to make us do what He wants us to do. Now God uses our response to sin. God uses sin in our life to make us more and more into the image of Christ. But God is not the author of that sin. God is not the one that puts it there. And James is saying, when you see this temptation, don't say that I am being tempted by God, because God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. There's a gift that God gives to us in that we see our sin, that it's illuminated and all of a sudden our sin, we become aware of what sin is in our life and illumination comes and we see it and it's a gift from God for us to see that sin so that we might not be tempted and lured away and enticed by our desire. For when desire gives birth to sin, when it's conceived it gives birth to sin and sin when it's fully grown brings forth death. God gives us a gift of illumination. It wasn't very long ago, a few weeks ago, I was praying with, with another another guy and, and his prayer was, God, be kind to us, be kind to us in showing us our sin. And my first response to that, my first thought as he prayed that was, yeah, I, you know, I want, I want God to be gentle with me as he shows me my sin. But the more I thought about that, the more I've thought about it since that day, I, I, I think the prayer is not be kind to me, be gentle with me as you show me my sin, but be kind to me in showing me my sin. That your kindness to me, God, is making me aware of the sin that is alive and at work in my body and in my flesh, the places where I'm tempted and I'm drawn away from you. So God, be kind to me in showing me that, in illuminating that in my life so that I might not be tempted giving 
conception to sin and letting that sin lead to death. One of the gifts that I think God gives to us is that He illuminates sin in our life and helps us to see it. So He says there's there's trials. He gives us trials as one of the gifts. And then wisdom is another gift. The third gift was contentment that God gives to us. Fourth gift is illumination. God helps us to see our sin. And then, in verse 12 there, the fifth gift that James talks about says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test of time, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love Him. And in verse 16 he says, Don't be deceived, James says. Don't be deceived, my my beloved brothers, for every good and perfect gift comes from the Father. The crown of life is one of the gifts that He gives. I think James uses the term crown, and I think we can understand the term crown because crowns are really... um, there's four four places that we see crowns in life. The first is that there's there's a crown that's worn in in joy, like like a crown or like a like a crown that might be worn at a wedding for a a, a bride might have some kind of crown on and and celebrate in happiness. There's a crown that goes with that. There's a crown that goes with with royalty or or authority, something that would be worn by the king. The king wears a crown because he has that rightful spot. He has uh, he has authority there. There's also a crown worn in victory, uh, a, a laurel wreath that might be put on a an athlete. Um, that would be a crown as well. And then there's a crown for for honor or or for dignity. Maybe a crown that might be worn by a um, a homecoming queen would have the honor of wearing the crown. All of those, all of those things, are just four of many ways that we begin to see a crown and and the significance and the the meaning behind a crown. I think James uses all of those ideas to say that there is a crown of life given by the Father who has no shadow in Him whatsoever. He is perfect and bright and holy. There is no shadow in Him. There is no change in His likeness. And He gives us a crown of life. Part of, I think, the picture that He's painting here is, again, He goes back to these trials that the church is facing, the very first gift that God gives to us that we talked about today. Says there's trials that you're going to face. Jesus, when he talked about trials, he says there's there's going to be a cross that we bear. That there are trials that we take, but the cross is temporary. James is saying there is a eternal a crown for life that you will wear. Your cross doesn't last very long. Your trial does not last very long, but your crown is forever. There's a crown of life that's given by the one who gives good gifts. 
Don't be deceived, James says. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, whom there is no variation or shadow. On His own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be the first fruits of His creatures. Every good and perfect gift is for us so that we might be part of the family of God. And we might be one of the first fruits of His creatures. He has brought us in through Christ. He gives us a crown for all of eternity. He is the giver of all good gifts. That's the God that we celebrate in today, that we rejoice in. Jesus makes all of these things possible. Jesus makes the way of the crown possible for us through redemption in His blood. My hope today is that as you think about as you think about these gifts, as you think about the giver of all good gifts, that you rejoice, that you rejoice in Him, but God who is rich in mercy made a way for us through Christ Jesus to be citizens citizens no longer aliens but citizens in his family the worship team is going to come they're going to lead us this morning we're going to sing together about the precious blood of Christ which makes a way for us to be brought into the family to wear the crown of life for all of eternity I invite you to stand with me this morning as we sing
God, we are so grateful this morning that we can rejoice in the gifts that you, the perfect giver, the giver of all good gifts, gives to us. Gifts like redemption bought through the precious blood of Christ so that we might not boast, but so that we might rejoice in the name of Jesus. Let us rejoice today in that gift. We pray these things today in your name. Amen. Thank you this morning for coming.